It's just a matter of, of shifting our perspective and changing the gaze and putting Black women front and center. Hello, my name is Kristen Smith, and welcome to the site Black Women Podcast. It's Black History Month, and we are continuing to celebrate the history of Black women in the United States. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of sitting down with our site Black Women Collective member, Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry. Dinah Ramey Berry is the Oliver H. Radke Regents Professor of History and the Associate Dean of Graduate Transformation at the University of Texas at Austin. She completed her BA, MA, and PhD in African American Studies and U.S. History at UCLA. Dr. Berry is a specialist on the history of gender and slavery in the United States and Black women's history. She is the award-winning author and editor of five books and several scholarly articles. Her recent book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to the Grave in the Building of a Nation, has been awarded three book awards, including the 2018 Hamilton Book Prize from the University Co-op for the best book among UT Austin faculty, the 2018 Best Book Prize from the Society for the History of the Early American Republic, or SHEER, and the Phyllis Wheatley Award for Scholarly Research from the Sons and Daughters of the U.S. Middle Passage. Barry's book was also a finalist for the Frederick Douglass Book Prize. In addition to her written work, Dr. Barry has received teaching awards from every university she has taught. Recently, she received the President's Associates Teaching Excellence Award at UT Austin in honor, an honor reserved for eight faculty members across campus. Professor Berry has received prestigious fellowships for her research from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, the American Association of University Women, and the Ford Foundation. She's a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians and has been featured by major news outlets from around the country. She is currently finishing a co-authored book with historian Callie Gross called A Black Women's History of the United States, which is scheduled to be published by Beacon Press in 2020. Thank you, Professor Berry, for joining us today for this podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you here today. Um, obviously, Dr. Barry is one of my colleagues here at UT Austin, and it's rare that we get a chance to sit down and talk about your work or to talk about anything outside of a meeting. So exactly. this is really exciting. And we used to bump at each other in the hallways, too. <laughs> absolutely. 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 And it's it's a pleasure to have such an illustrious colleague here on campus because um, your CV and your record is just really quite impressive. Anyone who reads your biography is simply overwhelmed by your by your accomplishments. Right. Um, you are the epitome of a distinguished scholar. Uh, and, and I feel honored to work with you. What do you feel has been your biggest accomplishment to date and why? Personal or professional? Or both? Oh, both. 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 So personal is easy. My, just being a mother, you know, Absolutely. just being a mother and being a working mom. You know, not everybody has the opportunities and some people have the privilege of being able to stay at home. But I've been a working mom, and um, he has been a big part of my scholarly pursuits because I'm doing all this to celebrate him and to to let him see what it means to work hard. 
And your son is really wonderful. I've had the pleasure of meeting him as well. And he is just a joy, especially considering that he's he's an almost teenager. So to have a yeah. a young man <laughs> who's a joy as an almost teenager is a real accomplishment. So let's check back in in about a year and see if you still say that. <laughs> what about in your professional world? What's the biggest accomplishment you feel like you've made so far? Well, I think, I mean, we could go to basic answers like, you know, certain books I've written or... Um, I think for me, though, it's really to be the opportunity to train students and work with students is really it at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level. I mean, I write books and I love writing books and I, I love to edit, um, but I like the work that I do with students, which doesn't always get, well, it has been recognized with, with teaching awards, but it's not always the labor that people see until your students are out in the world. Um, and I do work with a number of, of graduate students. I have like 10 PhD students now. And um, I work with undergraduate students, and we go to the archives together, like as a team with undergrad and grad students. Um, we're looking at primary documents. We're looking for the history of enslaved people in archives that you would never expect to find them. And I think that's where I get most of my joy is being in the archives with students, discovering new aspects of the history of slavery, finding enslaved people that we didn't know existed, and just seeing the power of their stories, and then finding ways to then transform that into our written work. No, I really love that. I think that um, one of the things that I admire about you the most is your mentorship of mm-hmm. students. Thank you. Uh, I've been able to witness the way that you groom your students and your ethical responsibility with students. And I think that you you really do um, create a set an example and a high mm-hmm. bar Thank for you. what for what graduate mentorship and undergraduate mentorship looks like. And I think that that's one of the reasons why um, your work for me is so impactuous mm-hmm. because it's not just research for research its sake. You really do have a pedagogical um, impetus behind what you're doing and and it is really about changing the world. Exactly. And I'm trying to teach students that I work with, to see enslaved people in spaces they may not have ever seen them or didn't know they were. Um, like, I remember we took this fall, I took um, a couple of undergrad, undergraduate students and then three or four graduate students to some archives in Galveston, Texas. And this was the first time that the undergraduate student had ever gone to a, an archive outside of ones on campus. And I found a journal that was written by um, a white slaveholding woman. And I said, okay, I want you to read this journal and find the enslaved people. And and so she, she was reading, it was like 88 pages or something like that. And she said, well, there's only about three places where she mentions this one enslaved woman, and here she is. And I said, okay, now take that. And I made her do this that same day in the archive. I said, okay, I want you to spend the afternoon writing a paragraph about that enslaved woman. So turn this story around and what can what can you teach us about her from this one these three or four references? And I said think about it. What kind of questions can we ask about her experience and what can we learn just from a passing reference? And that's really a part of site black women. Like where do we find black women? Where do they show up in the archives? It's not just about the citations that we do, but it's also citing them and bringing them into the history. And mm-hmm. that's par- partly what I want to do with my work. That's such an amazing story because that was exactly what I was going to going to follow up with and say that is so much a part of what this work is all about because we are often the footnotes and the margins of the archives yes. of the books of of the files of everything and so how do we begin to do that work how do what is the next step you see you see these sparse mentions 
in the archives. And, and you told that student, you know, write a paragraph about that. What does that work like? What does it mean to to bring voice to the voiceless? It's about trying to have um, people who might have been in the background that you would overlook. Like there's a... Um, a, a, an enslaved woman during the Civil War. I write about her, and we'll talk about my, my next book project later. But oh, um, I open up one of the chapters with the story of this little slave girl. And um, it was during the Civil War, and the Yankees came through the house, the plantation house, and they were scurrying through it and taking stuff and, and looking for all their riches and stuff and looking for money and, and jewelry. And the plantation, um, the enslavers put all the family's um, valuables in this little slave girl's apron. But the soldiers never looked at her. They didn't even, she says, they didn't even glance at me a second time. Wow. See, little did they know this little slave girl had everything that they were looking for. And so I think about that story, and I think about the story of this woman that we found in the archives, and I'm like, these are the stories that we need to tell. These are the stories that we need to uncover, and we need to find a way to put them front and center so that we tell the story of the Civil War from this little black girl who had money and jewels in her apron as opposed to the soldiers and the battles. And it's just a matter of of shifting our perspective mm-hmm. and changing the gaze and putting black women front and center. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's something um, that that to me is something that really extends beyond history as well. Absolutely. Right. Because I think that oftentimes, even for those of us that do research or work around contemporary figures, we're still that little slave girl who gets the riches hidden in her apron. Absolutely. And so in, in many ways, looking at that which is ignored that which doesn't seem important is 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 the work that we're trying to do when we're talking about bringing black women's bringing black women's contributions into the core absolutely of our work and yes. the core of our of our approaches to to not just research but also life life yes because go ahead I'm sorry no I was just thinking like when you were thinking about contemporary you mentioned contemporary I mean there's so many black women activists that are at the front of movements that are that have done things to shake up injustices that are happening today. And I think sometimes they get pushed to the background, even though we've always been in the front. We've been, I mean, if you look at it historically, black women have always led movements. Always, Absolutely. always, always. Whether we're talking about rebellions on enslaved ships, you're talking about um, during the American Revolution, some of the women that ran away, we can go through every historical moment, and there are black women up until today that are leading movements. Bree Newsom took the flag down. You know, that was that she led a movement. She made she took an action that really changed the way and and permanently removed the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House. Absolutely. Bree Newsom is definitely somebody who who I respect a lot. And I think that those kinds of actions do reverberate throughout history. Absolutely. And that's 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 an important Thing to keep in mind this Black History Month in particular, yes. because I think often when we're having conversations around Black History Month, either at our, at our kids' schools or in our university settings or even at work, et cetera, Black women are overlooked. Yes. And we're not thought of as the revolutionary heroes of our history. But in fact, we, we, we are. We have been. Yes, we have been. We have along. been and continue to be. Exactly. Is there a story of a Black woman's leadership that is little known, that stands out to you in your mind as a historian? Maybe something you came across in the archives or any of those things? 
So there's this one woman named Cinda who was in my first book. I wrote about her briefly in my first book, Swing the Sickle for the Harvest is Ripe, Gender and Slavery in Antebellum, Georgia. That and was your tenure book. That was my tenure book, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily written for a public audience, but I think it's it's digestible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At any rate, um, Cinda was a very influential figure on the in this plantation community. And she was able to basically lead a labor strike for three weeks. Wow. Yes, for three weeks. And it was a battle between her and the enslaver trying to tell the other enslaved people to listen to him and not not Cinda. And Cinda kept saying, it was, she used religion too and was saying that like we have to rebel and we have to turn the system over, over on its head and you know we'll be free after this. So she does this whole thing and she does a work slowdown and she says that there's going to be epiphany, there's going to be this moment of change. And so the the enslaver just kept saying, like, he kept casting doubt on Cinda's word. But people believed her for three weeks, and they did not pick cotton. They did not go to the fields, and the master was furious. Probably wow. lost a lot of money. I don't We don't know, but he probably lost a lot of money. Um, when that day came, nothing happened. She was saying that there was going to be an eclipse or there was some message or big sort of event, monumental event from God, and that didn't happen. And so that was the end of her, of her power. But for... For me, it's more about the three weeks than it is about the ending of it. That's really beautiful. Now, where was this? This was in coastal Georgia. Oh, wow. St. Simons Island, Georgia. That's really beautiful. It's so interesting how Black women have been creative in our use of storytelling. Yes. And spirituality and myth building. Yes. In order to um, create political change. Mm-hmm. And to me that's what that's what comes up in my mind when I think about that story. That's that's fascinating. I'm glad you shared that with yeah. us. I want to talk to you a little bit about your recent book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. It's a book that's contributing to a lot of conversations. So I wanted you to tell us a little bit about it and its contributions. So this is a 10-year book, 10-year book, not tenure, but 10-year <laughs> book. It took that. 10 years to write. Um, this is the book that I wrote for my entire first 10 years of my son's life, which is why wow. I, it has a special meaning. This is this is like my special book for me so far out of all the ones that I've worked on, um, although I love every project I've been involved in. Um, so the book looks at the life cycle of enslaved people's valuations, like the life cycle of how they're valued as a commodity in the market. That's the first thread. The second thread is how enslaved people responded, rejected, and reacted to being treated as a product. I always say that the, when you think about enslaved people as human capital, these were, these were a form of capital that could talk back, that had emotions, that interrupted sales, that said, no, I'm not worth that much, or I'm worth more, or they interrupted and tried to... to um, to take away the act of commodification that was being placed upon their bodies. Wow. And so that's really the what the book is about. And I looked, um, originally started writing it, trying to write an economic history of the values and what the values meant, what the actual monetary values meant. And as I got into the research, I kept being pulled towards enslaved people's voices and their stories and their thoughts and their opinions. And I thought, nobody's asked the question, like, what did the enslaved think? What did they feel? How did they respond to being treated? How did they respond to being treated like a product on the auction block? You know, how did they interpret? What does it look like to talk about this history from the perspective of the auction block gazing at the audience 
as opposed to most of the histories that have been written about slavery and slave trading, they're looking at from the perspective of the audience objectifying enslaved people. And I'm saying these are not objects. These are human beings. They might have been traded as an object, but they were people. And from before they were born until after they died, their lives were constantly being commodified. Their bodies were being traded, appraised, bartered, deeded, gifted, mortgaged, raffled. Every, every way you can think about it, their bodies were being traded in so many ways. But against that, enslaved people pushed back and they clung to the value of their souls, which I call soul values. And that was the one space that nobody could commodify. And it was the one place that they could look beyond the commodification of their bodies into surviving and thinking about life beyond slavery. That's so fascinating and utterly devastating yeah. at the same time. Um I, I was looking through the book last night and I was just struck by how compelling and painful the stories are. Very much so. What was it like to spend 10 years working on this book? Very, very, very hard. Um, I think after the book was finished and page proofs were done and we were I was waiting for like the... Maybe it was the galleys I was waiting for. I can't. Well, it was around the fall of 2016 that I actually feel like I released it. And from like October through December, the book came out in January. October through December was like a cleansing period for me, where I was like, like mourning, mourning and releasing, and just trying to like let everything that I had kept inside me to write it, to keep it together. Because I went into a space, I went into a sort of a what I call a writing cave. It was a metaphorical cave, but sometimes on some days it was really a physical cave where I literally had to check out of the world, like check out from my family, left, went to a hotel for a week, didn't interact with human beings, you know, for some of that week, and just wrote and tried to really stay centered on the stories and listening to the voices of the enslaved, let them guide me. Um, also making sure that I'm not speaking, that the stuff that I was putting in on paper was their words that they wanted to be shared with the world. Um, and, and to be that centered was, it took a lot of energy and it took a lot out of me, a whole lot out of me and my family. There's so much to unpack there. But one of the things that comes to my mind immediately is the labor of regaining our voices. Yes. And what that takes spiritually and emotionally from us as researchers, as scholars, as storytellers. Yes. Who want to honor the lives and souls. That's it. Of Black people and Black women in particular. And see, I was dealing with souls that had departed, and their departure was sometimes violent. And not only was their departure violent, but the bodies after they died were desecrated. So to enter in a space where I'm trying to write about and tell stories about those souls was a space of warfare from my perspective, yes. because I know that there was their, their bodies had been tormented even beyond death, 7, 10, 15 years after death, being cut up, open and cut up on dissection tables. I'm trying to write about those bodies and tell stories about people that were traded in a, in a, in a market beyond um, their lives, where they were valued at their deaths. They were valued, hung, decapitated, you know, cut open. And that was one of the hardest things. That I, it took three years for me to write that up. It took three years to research and three years to write. 
And I still feel like I have more to do there. Like I feel like there's there's more black bodies and people, um, black souls in medical schools, um, in medical institutions um, that, that, that I feel like are still circulating that need to be laid to rest. You've dealt with some really well-known figures um, who fit that particular story of our history, like Nat Turner. But I wanted to see, and I, and I really want to encourage everyone to take a look at the book because it's really powerful work that you're doing you. around these things. Um, but uh, we hear about Nat Turner, and we, we even had a, a recent film um, honoring his life and his legacy. But it's rare that the Black women who have suffered through these kinds of violences, it's rare that their stories get told. Can you tell us one of those stories? So the, one of the challenging things I have with that is that I've found, well, for me, the Black women that I'm drawn to in those spaces are the Black women that worked in the dissection. Yes. Tell us about that. There are there are a number of black women that were were there that were washing the rags that were used at the dissection on the dissection table the, for for the bodies. Um, so I, I think about history from a very sensory perspective. You know this about me, and so I think like what were the smells like? You know what were, what was the what were, were the liquids that they were touching and using to clean up the room? Was it cold water? Was it warm water? Like were they dealing with chunks of body parts like what would that be like for a, a woman to be standing by and not looking at the body that's being cut open or and maybe even knowing the body that's on the table mm. that's a real that's reality they may have she may have even known who that body belonged to who it was absolutely she, she may have known them while they were living so what does that mean and so i think there's there's a number of women i tried to tra- trace i don't know their names i just know that they were there and i think there's some more work to be done there um, in terms of women that were dissected, um, I write about Joyce Heth, who was uh, someone that P.T. Barnum put on display during her life, and he pitched her as the 161-year-old housemaid of George Washington, which was not true. Yes. Um, and then after she died, um, Lily did a public autopsy, and he people paid money to go and it sold out in New York at a theater and they opened her up and they figured out that she was about 70 or 80 years old. But for me, like as a scholar who writes about black women's history, the controversy in the written text becomes about Barnum lying about her age and him blaming her. He turns around and says, well, it was her. She did this. She's the one that lied. And I'm like, there's a body on the table that's a black woman whose soul is has been ripped to pieces and has been put on display. Like, how do we rectify that? Like, I, I tried to find, you know, where her grave is, you know, just what happens after that. And how can we give her a proper burial today? How can we recognize her, honor her, and thank her for the work that she did and let her know that we see her? And that's, that's one person. Um, in the book that I'm writing now, I'm writing about two conjoined twins. Mm-hmm. Um, Millie and Christine McCoy, who spent their lives literally from 10 months old being inspected and poked and prodded and put on stage. And, you know, those are black women that I feel had such an injustice done to them. I don't even know what we can do today to to rectify that. 
I, I just hope that honoring them is part, and I don't even think it really gets us to what needs to be done. I don't think we can rectify mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I think what we can do is refuse to be silent about their stories. Yes. And I think that in many ways, our refusal to be silent is resistance in a lot of ways because because there is nothing more silencing than killing someone through a violent death and dissecting their body. You are trying to erase them yes. and erase their existence. Exactly. And then the family doesn't get to do the closure for the family. That's the big piece for me. Absolutely. That's missing. Absolutely. And there's such a transnational resonance with that as well. Because when you were telling the story of Heth, I couldn't help but remember Sarah Bartman. I was thinking about, yeah. And the others that are in the basements of museums yes. and and uh, universities mm-hmm. across the world, in Europe and the United States in particular, but also across Latin America. Oh, yes. And so there's so much that we could talk about with that regard as well. There was there's something that you write in in the book that I wanted to to talk to you about. You write the intimate relationship between enslavers, physicians and human property shows just how commodification, the act of being treated as a commodity, touched every facet of enslaved people's births, lives and afterlives. Can you talk specifically about the way that this relationship uniquely impacted black women? And what this story tells us about how U.S. society imagines Black women's value then and now? So that's a great question. Um, I actually set out, in addition to trying to write a book that looked at what the values meant, the monetary values, I actually thought, and I came to the project thinking that women were priced higher than men during their childbearing years. So I was excited. I was like, I got this feminist argument about women being valued more because of the fact, I mean, in a weird twisted way because they're giving birth, which gives enslavers free sources of labor, but the fact that they had a monetary value. And I wasn't looking for bragging rights or anything like that, but I just felt like that is very important and it needs to be um, highlighted. I had found eight plantations in Georgia that women were priced higher. This was from my first book. And this, this, this book really came out of chapter six of Swing the Sickle that I ended up nixing and wrote The Pound of Flesh from that chapter forward. Wow. So um, the women that I found that were priced higher in their childbearing years, I assumed when I was doing the research for Pound of Flesh that all women were, were, would be priced higher, or the most, the majority of them would. And I found across the board, no, no, no. This, these, Those plantations were outliers um, from every age group, from birth, well, actually, between under age 10, boys and girls are, are often priced around the same. And then in the elderly age groups, they're, they're some, sometimes priced the same. But when they reach puberty, boys are always higher than girls, even uh-huh. during the childbearing years. So you ask, like, well, why, why, why do those eight plantations have women priced higher? And I don't know the answer to that, but I do think that most of the people that managed those plantations were white females. And I'm not saying they're necessarily sympathetic, but there was all there was a lot of back and forth between the enslaved women going to their plantation mistress and pleading for work release from labor because they had just given birth and the master gives me no rest. And, you know, so there's a lot of that in some of these records and their husbands were all away and it was all isolated to one island community. So I'm thinking that there's just something different about that space on St. Simon's Island, Georgia. I don't know. That's the only thing I could speculate. Um, But for the most part, Women are not priced higher than men. But to answer the other part of your question, um, what do we find in particular about women? 
Um, the first three chapters of the book really deal with women more than more than the, the last three, primarily because we're looking at um, the cycle of life. So as we're going through the ages, they get through puberty, and there's this hypersensitivity to women's menstrual cycle, like across the board in medical records, in letters, in diaries, in newspapers, in public spaces, in, in broadsides and advertisements that were placed. You know, here's this one little one slave woman, Rachel, age 19, um, somewhat sickly, whatever, but her menses are irregular. So everybody has been warranted and sound except for Rachel. So you see this list of enslaved people, but then Rachel is not sound because her menses are irregular. What does it mean to have, you know, something so personal blasted on a poster that's posted all over, all over the community before an auction sale? Rachel gets no privacy, you know? And so that's those are some of the stories that I write about um, in those first three chapters and about the women who did um, manage to I think there was maybe this one plantation, and they, the women on the plantation, were all childbearing years of their in their childbearing years. They managed not to give birth to any children for like ten years. Wow! And the owner and the owner kept trying to figure out why. The enslaver kept asking why, and they were like, "We don't know. We're just not able to have birth." And he kept putting pressure on him and pressure. And finally, later on, one woman said like they had used cotton cottonseed oil and other abortifacents to make sure that they did not give birth to children. Wow. But that's even bigger than the work slowdown that Cinda did. That's much bigger. Yes. That's 10 years of, quote unquote, lost revenue. Exactly. And it's their bodies that they're controlling what happens to them. I think that's a beautiful story, but yeah. I, I'm sure that, that I'm a little odd in that regard. But I, yeah. I, to me, that's just empowering. It's it is. a very empowering Extremely story. Extremely frustrating for her enslaver, though. <laughs> well, and, and good. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's just a powerful, powerful story. And 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 the way that you you deal with black women's stories and black women's valuation, I think, is just extremely powerful. And one of the things that I find fascinating about your conceptualization of the value of an enslaved person's body is the perspective that it brings to conversations about citation. Mm. Specifically, there seems to be a connection between the appropriation and exploitation of black women's minds, bodies and souls during slavery and our contemporary experiences inside and outside of the academy. Can you talk a bit about the politics of citation and its relationship to the history of the commodification of Black women? That's a heavy question, but um, yes. So I will speak to this more first from the perspective of my field, the field of history. Um, it's not so much, it's not as big of a challenge in Black studies, I'm I'm saying that I'm saying hmm am I gonna yes I'm gonna say that no I am saying that <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> at any rate um, in in the historical profession when we look at African American women like historical actors um, most of those not all but most of those that write about Black women actors have been African American women scholars there are a number of white women Asian women Latina women that write about Black women's history don't get me wrong. But I think, you know, the field of black women's history as a whole um, work by people like Angela Davis, Deborah Gray White, Darlene Clark Hine, Rosalind Tur the late Rosalind Turberg Penn, um, my former advisor, Brenda Stevenson, a number of scholars. Um, a lot of those writers were black women. Um, they're, they're activist scholars, scholar activists who believe that these stories needed to be told. Like Deborah Gray White, if you ever look at any of her Work. She did a book called Telling Histories, and it's an excellent book um, from the perspective of black women historians and their experience in the profession. 
it should be a required reading for sight black women. Oh, it really, I love it really it. should. Um, okay. And it talks about some of the challenges that scholars have had, personal, professional challenges. And um, Deborah Gray White wrote the first book, um, um, Aren't I a Woman, on female slavery in 1985. That book changed my life. And it, it was one of the major studies that made me want to go into becoming a historian. And But while she was writing it, her dissertation committee, mostly I think white males, they, they said, who wants to know about these? There's, there's, not, there's not a story here. Nobody wants to know about black women during slavery. Like, who, no one's going to publish this. She had rejection after rejection after rejection from publication companies. And it wasn't until the late Ann Fryer Scott, who was a famous, very famous scholar um, from Duke and also worked at UNC Chapel Hill. She did a book called The Southern Lady. Um, Ann Fryer Scott took the book to Norton Press and said, you have to read this dissertation and you should consider publishing it. And they did. And the book took off and it's it's one of the major books that's required reading for the history of slavery. So that's an example of women, a white woman scholar, you know, making sure that black women are being cited and being recognized. Um, so I think when we look at the work of in slavery, and when we look at slavery, a lot of the scholars that write about this, about the history of enslaved women, this field has taken off over the last few years. It has. I mean, there are so many books. So Deborah Gray White has trained a number of students. Brenda Stevenson has trained a number of students, Darlene Clark Hine, Wilma King, and all those students are coming up right now and they're publishing books and there's tons in the pipeline. Um, and I think one of the things that we do as black women scholars who write about slavery, um, we try to cite each other because there are, we, we have been, contrib we've been contributing and participating in conversations about the history of slavery. And a lot of the old boy network does not cite our work, but they'll be at our conference panels. They'll be sitting in the audience. They'll be taking notes. They'll come up to us afterwards, ask us where we got that story from. And of course we don't tell, but they'll, they're constantly trying to get information, but then they won't cite us. Mm. And I can give you, can I give you one example? Absolutely. Please. So in 2007, the, uh, the commemoration of the closing of this transatlantic slave trade, I went to a major conference in Ghana and um, presented a paper on slave prices there. I was on a panel with all white scholars except for two, me and another black woman who was Afro-Caribbean. And there was one of the leading scholars of African-American history who's white male, who happens to be deceased now, who was giving the comments. And um, we presented our papers and literally like um, some of the members of the Ashanti kingdom were sitting, like literally like um, some of the elders were sitting in the front row. And you could tell they were really happy to see black women present. Um, when the commentator, this very distinguished scholar of slavery, was going over and, and talking about the papers, he skipped over mine and skipped over. He he said something about the other black women and skipped over mine and said, well, Barry's work is just preliminary and then kept going. That is devastating. That's uh, That was very devastating for me at the time. And um, Wilma King, a historian, was in the audience and she said, I, she stood up and said, I'd like for you to engage Dr. Barry's work. And he said, well, it's just too preliminary right now. And so the members of the Shante um, kingdom came up to me afterwards, and they were like, thank you, sister, for your work. We really appreciate it. We like what you were saying. You know, they, they embraced me afterwards, but it was, it was probably one of the biggest professional slights I've ever experienced. That is devastating. And I, I think And I was in Africa. Yeah, you know, I think it could have <laughs> been anywhere. Yeah, but that, that hurt a little bit more. Right. You I can know. see that. I can definitely see that. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a way I, I've experienced things that are similar mm -hmm. in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. why I say it could okay. be in, a, anywhere. It. I think that um, we get slighted constantly. Mm -hmm. And 
there, but there's a part of your story that I think is really inspiring. And that is that moment when a mentor and an elder gets up and says, you're not going to do this to her. And I think that that's something that we need to really think about are the ways that the politics of solidarity yes. factor into the politics of citation. Yes. And we need to continue to speak up. I mean, Darlene Karkine was a colleague of mine at Michigan State. And in the department meetings, one of my chairs would say, well, Dinah's going to take the notes. You wow. Know, she's going to be the scribe. And she was like, no, she's not. I'm glad she said yeah, no, I mean, she's not. And I was like, I didn't want to either. But, you know, I'm just saying, like, it's not like I was a pushover. But it was, it's just, in, I had, I've always had senior black women stand up for me. Mm. More so than any other group of people. Mm. That's what I would say about sight black women. Mm. And that's, that's one of the reasons testament. why I wanted to be a part of this collective. Thank you. Sorry, mm. I cut, and I cut you off. That's okay. No, thank you. That That is a beautiful testament. I think I was just kind of overwhelmed mm-hmm. with the emotion of that. Because I think that that, to me is really key because what is what's insidious about the way that we are taught in graduate school in particular is that the way that our committees and our advisors teach us not to cite black women mm. is actually distancing us from community and from solidarity and from our support networks right. and so i know young women who are doing their their doctorates who've never had a real serious conversation with a black female scholar, mm-hmm. who don't engage in black women's work mm-hmm. in their work. And that hurts yeah. because it, it, I'm sad that they're not engaging with the full spectrum of research out there, but I'm even more sad that they're distancing themselves mm-hmm. from the people who are really going to take care of them. Well, and, you know, I have to say this to be honest, and I'm in more, as I as I age and approach a milestone birthday. <laughs> no I'm not going to say what that age <laughs> is, but people will know soon. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to hide it much longer. But um, as I age, I'm more honest. And not that I was dishonest before, but sometimes black women take out of the black women too. Let's be real. That's very true. Let's, I mean, let's be real. That's if very we're gonna, true. I, I, I'm all for solidarity, but sometimes we are our worst enemies. That's very true. I'm just I real think, talk. No, I think, I think that's very true. I think... One of the things that we need to work on um, is really building sisterhood. Yes, because it's not a natural skill. No, but it is. But it is a learned and applied skill. And when it is applied appropriately, it can be a beautiful and powerful thing. It sure can. And I think there's something about being deliberate about. Yes. Like I'm very deliberate about mentoring, and I've had um, the opportunity to mentor a lot of Black women scholars. And I take those opportunities seriously, and I take them on. Um, somebody made a comment recently about um, me mentoring too many people or whatever. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of mentor programs. And so I've been asked to do, and so a lot of those programs, I haven't gone public with who these women are because I didn't, you never know how that's going to impact when we go up for tenure. If, if I'm able, Where am I able to write letters? Like So when people ask me, I'll say, well, if you want me to mentor you, do you want this to be a public mentorship? A private mentorship right. because I'm not going to be able to write for your tenure file. Right. If we're going to be on panels, you know, these are things that we have. To, so I say, like, let's tell me where you want me. Right. And I'm happy to be there. Right. But let's 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 look at this deliberately and strategically before we make this decision. That's great advice for anybody <laughs> listening that's on the tenure track. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I think that I think that's absolutely the case, and I think mentorship is a key aspect of oh, this. Yes. Yes. And and again, I want to just emphasize, you're one of the best mentors I've ever 
encountered because you. you really take it seriously and and put your all into it. Thank you. So I'm really excited about your upcoming co-authored book, A Black Women's History of the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, I'm actually very excited about it as well. Um, I'm writing this book with my colleague, Kelly Nicole Gross from Rutgers University, New Brunswick campus. She is a Martin Luther King Jr. professor of history. And um, she is a specialist in late 19th, early 20th century history. And I'm a specialist in 19th and earlier. So we kind of have a little bit of overlap. Um, we are writing a book about black women. Um, it's sort of a textbook, but not really. It's, it's written for a popular audience. Um, so we're hoping that many people will read it. Um, we are trying to find stories of black women that you may or may not have heard of. Um, we're not necessarily looking at all black women that were respectable. We're looking at women that deviated from the norm, whatever the norm is at that time. Um, we're looking for women that you may not have known. And we're starting the first chapter begins with women before 1619. Wow. So we're looking at, you know, the one drop rule. We're looking at people that had African ancestry hmm. that were on American soil before it was the United States. Hmm. And one of the things we argue is that black women came to this country demanding justice. This woman that we open up, Isabel de Oliveira, de Oliveira she talks about how she demands justice and she wants to be recognized. So I think what a powerful way to think about black women in the United States as coming here demanding to be recognized, demanding for protection from the, you know, their own protection, not necessarily somebody to protect them, but their own protection, and demanding justice. Um, and we carry that all the way through and bring it up till today. And we're looking at really, really, it's, it's a book of storytelling. And it's a book of, of really, really talking about Black women's lives, celebrating them, centering them, and the painful and triumphant history that is their experience here in the United States. Wow. And that's going to be out in 2020, right? January 7th of 2020. And there's a K through 12 component to it as well. Young Can you adult. talk a little bit yeah, about that? So um, Beacon is hopefully, we're looking at doing a young adult version of that book as well, which I think would be so important for all the young young women out there, not just African-American women, but other young women of color to know about these stories. And so we're working on getting a contract for that as well. Absolutely. That would be great. Yeah. I hope, I hope, that, prayers I hope that Beacon <laughs> will listen because I think that would be great. And I think that um, in particular, you know, there's just a need for new material on African-Americans in K through 12. And, you know, uh, my colleague Erica Armstrong Dunbar just published um, a young adult version of the story of Ona Judge. Oh, wow. The runaway, um, George Washington's runaway slave. And that, her book, the adult version of the book, was a national book award finalist. So oh, we wow. do have that, the story of Ona Judge. So young girls will learn about Ona Judge through her new young adult version of that book. That's great. Well, I want to end our conversation on a fun question. At least I think it's a fun question. Because okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's good to end on a high note. Mm -hmm. Which black woman inspires you the most, living or dead? You only get one choice. Ooh. Oh, I already know this. Wil <laughs> uh oh, that was quick. Easy. Wilma Rudolph. Oh, wow. Wilma okay, Rudolph. tell us about that. So I was a track athlete, and I have been I ran from age like five or six on um, until I couldn't run anymore, and now I'm running again. But um, I had always admired her story, um, overcoming polio and becoming an Olympic champion. Um from a very poor upbringing and just her drive, her determination, her focus. And I actually had an opportunity. I did some work on black women in track and field when I was an uh, early career so assistant professor. 
And I presented it at the Olympic Training Center and uh, the Olympic Trials. I presented this work in, uh, at that on that. And I had opportunity to interview her. And I was like, could not wait. I was so excited. And I put it off like once. I couldn't, I couldn't do it one summer. I said, okay, well, I'll do it next summer because I'm, I, don't remember, I don't remember why, but I had to put it off. And she passed away. Oh, no. I never got a chance to meet her. Oh, no. Yeah. And so now I always tell people, if you have older relatives, interview them. Even if you have to take out your phone, get their stories, you know. And I feel like next time I ever have an opportunity to interview somebody, I'm going to take it. Because she is my idol. She's the person that I model my life after outside of God. Um, and she's someone that I will always have dear to me. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share with us or in our listeners before we go? Cite Black Women. Yes, thank you. <laughs> We're so happy that you are part of our collective. It is, it is truly an honor. And it's been wonderful talking with you today. I learned things about you that I didn't know before. And I think that that is, is one of the beautiful reasons why this podcast is so important. Thank you. I really am happy to be working with you on this project. And I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world.